Acts 5:17:29 But the high priest rose up and all who were with him that is the party of the Sadducees and filled with jealousy they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life And when they heard this they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, Yet here you are, filled Jerusalem with your, teach- with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Good morning. In 2009, Asiya Bibi in Pakistan was seeking to live out our Christian faith and was arrested and charged with blasphemy. She was then condemned to die. 2016, Andrew Brunson, an American pastor in Turkey, was arrested for living out his Christian faith, charged with terrorism, thrown in jail, convicted of terrorism, with a long prison sentence, simply for living out their Christian faith in a hostile world. Now, many of us prayed for them. I certainly did for them to be released. And praise God, they were last month in October. Both of them were released from prison. But it was a very public reminder for us because it was so much in the news that we live in a world that is by and large hostile to true, vibrant, biblical Christian faith. We're in the book of Acts, and last week we saw at the end of chapter 5 that things were going amazingly well for the church. Verse 14 of chapter 5, it says, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. People were being healed. It was an exciting time in the early church. But we live in a world that demands allegiance. And when Jesus starts taking control of people's lives and really helping them live as though Jesus is Lord and not Caesar or this world, then the God of this world doesn't like being exposed for its lies. It doesn't like losing control of its people. And Satan goes on the attack. Last week we saw the internal attack through Ananias and Sapphira, but... Today, our passage is focused on an external attack from the political and religious powers of the day. Now, in America, we seldom, though sometimes, but seldom 
face the kind of attack that ASEA and Andrew Brunson have faced, and many others throughout the world, obviously. But as we move more and more into a post-Christian culture, which we are finding more and more, that the values of this world are opposed to our Christian faith, the hostility will increase. Peter Lightheart explains it this way. Early Christians were witnesses against the religious foundations of Rome. Rome existed because of a social contract between gods and Romans. As long as the Romans honored their gods, the gods would give Rome success. But Christians broke this social contract by their silence, by their refusal to worship Caesar, and by their insistence that Jesus is Lord. But today, as in Rome, Christians are deviants. <laughs> we don't accept the rules of the game. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying that people are not, that God imposes limits on human freedom. We don't need to seek martyrdom. Living as a faithful Christian life will put us at odds with the rules of the game. If we teach our children what the Bible is true, now listen carefully. If we teach our children that the Bible is true, we'll be considered by some to be child abusers. If we say that abortion is murder or that sodomy is an abomination, which the Bible says, we're bigots. If we try to live Christianly in public, including the workplace, we may well face the wrath of the gods. Brothers and sisters, we need to be prepared for what's coming. So a couple of questions we need answered for us is what can we expect from the world? What kind of hostility can we expect? And then secondly, if we live in a hostile world, how can we live out our Christian faith in a way that will bring glory to God and allow us to be people of integrity in this hostile and broken world? I think our passage today will help us answer those questions. Pray with me. Lord, as we look into your word together, we thank you that your word is a living word. It's powerful. May you use it today in our hearts to accomplish its purpose and to prepare us more and more to live in a hostile world. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So first of all, what can we expect from the world? What? What do will how should it respond to us? What what will we find as we live out our Christian faith? Well, I just read 514 where multitudes were coming to Christ. One of the responses of those around us will be joy, reception of the gospel. They'll be excited about it. Some will respond because God has prepared hearts. And so we can expect that some will receive the gospel and the good news with joy. They'll be excited and attracted to the life of Jesus moving among his people. But others, as we see in this passage, will respond with hostility. What are the, some of those responses we can expect? I want to highlight four from this passage. First is jealousy, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. The religious powers, the political powers of the day were jealous. Now, think about this for a minute. So 
the apostles and the Christians there were meeting in the temple area and they'd grown over just a short time into thousands of people. We know at least 5,000. And then it says multitudes more were coming to Christ. This was a big deal. (laughs) There was a buzz going on. And you can imagine the political and religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the high priests, and they're watching this and they're thinking, wow, we don't have that kind of following. And look at how God's moving. And it was obvious that God was moving. They were jealous of the influence of the apostles. They were jealous of what was going on and how many people were responding. And they were jealous of the fact that God was at work among them. You see, we can expect jealousy from the world. Christianity is fine as a private religion. Keep it to yourself, but don't let it invade the workplace. Don't let it invade your your politics or anything else. Just keep it private and everything's fine. But once we start living out our faith in a way where we're speaking of it and living it out in the public sphere, and we start having influence that way, and people are coming to Christ, people will respond With jealousy. The world wants to keep the status quo because that's comfortable and that's control. That allows the powers that be in this world control. And Christians are standing against that. And so because of that, the world will be jealous. I think that may be what's happening in China today. I just noticed in the news this week how China has had an uncomfortable uh, relationship with Christianity over the years, but the house churches are growing so quickly now and God's moving in such a powerful way that the government, communist government, is now cracking down on those house churches. Why is that? Well, maybe for all these reasons, but at least partially for jealousy, I think. They don't want to lose control. They don't want to lose power and they see there's a movement here that they're afraid of and is going to gain more and more power. So jealousy is the response that you can expect from those around you at times. Another response is misunderstanding or confusion. We see that in verse 24 as the apostles are led out of prison by the angel and they end up back preaching again and they just don't get it. The leaders, the captain of the temple guard and so forth, don't understand. Verse 24, now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words that they were out preaching again and they weren't in in jail anymore, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. They were perplexed. They were confused. That, That word has this idea of you are completely dumbfounded because what you're seeing doesn't fit into your view of the world at all. You you just can't make sense of it. You see, they weren't used to seeing God actually work and move among the people. And this miracle where the apostles were let let out of jail and the guards didn't even know about it was mind-blowing to the high priests and the temple guards and all the leaders of the day. It was confusing. It was perplexing. And when you face something where God is moving among you, you basically have two options. One option is to realize, wow, I've been looking at the world wrong. There is a God and he's at work and I can see it. And you embrace that truth and allow it to change your view of the world. 
That's a good response. Probably a more common response, though, is when you see God moving in a miraculous way is to go, wow, this doesn't make sense. I can't fit it in. I don't want to change. So I will find a way to reject this new information and cling to my old reality. And that's what the world will do. It will be perplexed, but it will misunderstand the hand of God instead of embracing the hand of God. You know, sometimes we think if God would just do more miracles, if he just show up more visibly. People would come to Christ, it would convince them. Well, remember Jesus's parable in in Luke chapter 16 about Lazarus and Abraham and and the rich man and the rich man is in hell, basically in Sheol. And he says, please send someone from the dead, send Lazarus so he can tell my brothers about all this. And Jesus said what? He said, even if they saw someone risen from the dead, they would not believe. You see, we don't change our paradigm very well. The world doesn't understand spiritual reality. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's only seen by the Spirit opening our eyes because we just don't get it. So you can expect misunderstanding from the world. You could expect them to explain things away rather than embracing something that's obviously God working right in front of their faces. So we can expect jealousy. We can expect misunderstanding. And we can also expect fear, fear from the world around us. Verse 26, the men who were set free, it says, verse 25, someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, in this case, they were afraid for their lives. (laughs) There's a huge crowd here. And they're afraid, uh-oh, you know, if they turn on us, we're, we're dead. But I think that's emblematic of fear that the world has about Christianity. There's a fear that the world has of losing power, fear of losing control, fear of anarchy, fear of having to face God, fear of death, in this case, if the people turned on them. You see, Christianity is a threat to the powers that be. Why? Because we live an alternative lifestyle, a different way than the world around us that it doesn't understand. And it's threatening. And they fear the disruption that it could cause. The world doesn't like being challenged. We see this worldwide right now, even even in the way in which some of our global workers are having their visas canceled in different countries. Maybe they've served for many, many years, like the Mannings, for example. Why is that? Why are they canceling visas? I think at least part of it is fear. Fear that if there's too much Christian influence in these countries, that they will begin to lose power and control over the people. You probably see it among your own friends as you share Christ with them, perhaps, and they have a fear of having to change, fear of having to give up something. Gee, if I become a Christian and embrace that, I'll have to give up something in my life that I don't want to give up a fear of submitting to God. You see, the world often responds with fear to the Christian faith. And then fourth, what you often see is an anger, a rage. We see that in verse 30 and following. It's 
as Peter is confronting them and he says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Not a good way to win friends and influence people, right? You killed him. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter very clearly says, God's at work in this. And notice their response, verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. If the world can't control Christians through intimidation, through laws, through throwing them in jail, whatever it might be, then eventually they'll try to destroy them because if it can't control them, it must get them out of the way. And that's why there's been so much persecution of Christians all through church history. And right now, in many, many places in the world, there's terrible persecution going on. Brothers and sisters, don't be fooled into thinking, like some of us do, that if I just live a really good Christian life, really loving and caring, that the world will be happy with me and accepting of me. Far from it. This is a spiritual battle. And the evil one doesn't want the gospel to go forth. He does not want to give up territory. So you can expect that the more you live for Jesus, the more you learn to give your heart over to him and to live out the faith in every area of your life and every place you go. You can expect that some will respond with joy, but you can also expect that many in your families, many at work, many in your neighborhoods and so on will respond with jealousy, with misunderstanding, with fear and even anger and rage. So that's not a very pretty picture, is it? It's it makes you feel pretty alone in the world. So where is God in all this, how is he working in all this persecution? Well, I, I love this verse 18 because it's just so 18 and 19 because it just says they arrested the apostles, put them in public prison. It looks bad. The apostles, you know, the world is saying, OK, the leaders, hey, let's arrest all the leaders. We'll throw them in jail. We'll get rid of them. And this whole movement will just die. It looks bad. But verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. They're in jail. They're surrounded by leaders. The doors are locked. They've got soldiers surrounding them. And God's like, you know, I don't even want him to spend one night in jail. I think I'll just let him out. You see, God's absolutely in control, brothers and sisters. No matter what the world throws at us, at believers, God's absolutely in control. He is the blessed controller. Prison walls mean nothing to him, and he will not let his plans be thwarted by any power of mankind. You have a mean boss <laughs> that cannot thwart God's plans for you and for his kingdom. Prison walls, economic 
oppression, etc., on and on. Nothing can stop God's plan. God is sovereign. That's the theological word, sovereign. He's absolutely in control. Every heartbeat of ours is in his hands. Every breath, like we sang about a few moments ago. It's all in his hands. He's in control, and nothing man does can thwart his plans. He's in control of all circumstances. Now, you may be thinking, okay, he let them out of jail, but what about those who end up staying in jail for a longer time? Asiya and Andrew Brunson and on and on. Well, we've seen through the scriptures, if you think about it, a lot of God's people spent time in jail. Think of Joseph. He spent time in prison, but you know what? God used his time in prison to prepare him and open the door for him to become the most influential person in the greatest kingdom of the day, Egypt, next to Pharaoh himself. Paul spent plenty of time in prison, two years in Caesarea, at least two years in Rome, and then he was back in prison and arrested other times, Philippi, etc., But you know what? God used his time in prison to expand the gospel. And during his time in prison, he wrote some of the greatest letters we have in the New Testament. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 2 Timothy, all written by Paul from prison. And I I love Philippians 4, 21 and 22, where Paul says, All the saints here greet you. Oh, and by the way, those of Caesar's household do too. <laughs> He's in jail, but his guards and the people around him are coming to Christ. It's working its way into Caesar's household. God uses, if he chooses in his sovereignty to leave people in jail, his, his followers, it's for a greater reason. John Bunyan was a British-English pastor who was thrown in jail for eight years. During those eight years, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the greatest works of English literature ever written before God let him out. God just has a bigger plan, and we can trust his plan, whatever he chooses to do. And then at the end of this passage, I, I just like the way God works. It's, it's awesome where, starting in verse 33, they were enraged, they wanted to kill him, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, Know that name? He's the one who trained Paul. He was the greatest Pharisee of the day, the leader of the Pharisees, the chief rabbi, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all those following him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. You see, God is 
not above using the chief rabbi, the one who trained Paul, Paul who tried to kill the Christians until God converted him on the road to Damascus. God says, I think I'll use Gamaliel, the most influential Pharisee, to protect my apostles so they won't be harmed. And I love the fact that Gamaliel appeals to God's sovereignty, which God is showing all the way through this. It, it's just a reminder, brothers and sisters, that God is absolutely in control of circumstances and of people. Nothing can thwart his purposes. When God allows bad stuff to happen, he's working in it. Yes, we will suffer. Yes, we may end up in jail even. But he always is going to work it for his greater purposes and for our good. So we don't have to fear. We can trust in his sovereignty. We can keep following him, knowing he's in control. Whatever you're facing, whatever it might be, whether it's health issues, difficulty at work, a difficult marriage, a difficult uh, relationship with your children, or something that you're struggling with, understand that God is in this. He has a bigger purpose, and so you can keep trusting in him. The point of all this is that God is sovereign. He's the blessed controller. So no matter what your circumstances, no matter what hostility you face in your family, in your job, in your neighborhood, from our culture, God's will cannot be thwarted. He's working out what's best for you and for his kingdom. So if all that's true, then how should we respond? Well, again, the example of the apostles is great here. I just want to highlight some of their responses First of all, they were obedient to their calling. They didn't hide. They didn't step back and and run away, but they were just simply obedient to their calling. Verse 21, when they were told by the angel to go out and teach, they when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. The very end, verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I'm struck by their faithfulness because if I had been arrested, my tendency might have been to say, well, you know what? Let's just lay low for a while. (laughs) You know, let's just play it safe. We don't want to cause too many waves. Why stir up trouble? You know, I'll just quietly go about my business until things kind of blow over. They didn't do that. They were just obedient to their calling to proclaim the truth, and they were willing to let the chips fall where they might. They were just faithful. Secondly, they were submissive to the governing authorities. It strikes me that they didn't try to take power away from them. Verse 25 and 26, someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. It strikes me that the apostles at that point could have said, you want to take us to prison? There's thousands of people, supporters of the apostles there. They could have said, you guys just need to leave. We're going to keep preaching. (laughs) Leave us alone. But you know what they did? They just said, okay, you want to arrest us again? (laughs) You know, it didn't work out so well last time, but hey, if you want to arrest us, go ahead. And they submitted to the governing authorities. They did keep preaching. They obeyed God first, but 
they didn't use the powers that they could have used, the power of the crowd, violence, etc., to protect themselves. They didn't, they didn't use any of that. They simply submitted to what came their way. They saw that a biblical response was a nonviolent submission to what the world will throw at you because, and now listen, this is the key, because they knew that God was in control even of the persecution. God's in control even of the persecution. Third, they were obedient to God no matter the cost. This is just a continuation, but they came again before the council, it says, verse 27, and they said, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Here you are, you're, you're filling Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, well, we must obey God rather than men. <laughs> they were submissive to the authorities, but not where it contradicted what God had clearly told them to do. So they were obedient to God no matter what the cost. See, if God's sovereign, we can obey him and trust it, that he'll control the forces out there in the world. Yes, we may suffer, but that's part of the plan. They were submissive, and yet they did what essentially is civil disobedience. We must obey God rather than men. What does that look like for us? Well, John Stott put it quite well, I think. He said, to be sure, Christians are called to be conscientious citizens and generally speaking, to submit to human authorities. But if the authority concerned misuses its God's given power to command what he forbids or forbid what he commands, let me say that again because that's key. If the authority misuses its authority to command what God forbids or forbid what God commands, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God's authority. The world tells us not to live as though Jesus is Lord and declare the good news. We must obey God rather than men. And then finally, what we see in their response is they rejoiced in suffering. Verse 40 and 41, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. Thirty-nine lashes, this was severe. And charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Notice their response. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. You see, the apostles cared more about God's kingdom and being joined to Jesus than staying safe and comfortable like Paul in Philippians 3 where he said, I press on that I may know him, Jesus and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. To be able to walk with Jesus, even in suffering. Harwas and Willimon say this in their book, Resident Aliens, we would like a church that again asserts that God, not nations, rules the world that the boundaries of God's kingdom transcend those of Caesar, and that the main political task of the church is the formation of people who see clearly the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay the price. I want to close with just a final thought. Verse 20, when the angel is speaking to the apostles, 
He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Interesting, he doesn't say, go preach the gospel. Go talk about Jesus. Go help people understand that there's an alternative way to live, that there is a new life we are offering to live out. N.T. Wright says this about it. It was a way of life in the sense that life itself had had come to life in quite a new way. A force of life had broken through the normally absolute barrier of death and had burst into the present world of decay and corruption as a new principle, a new possibility, a new power. And it was this life, of course, which was carrying the apostles along with it like a strong wind driving sailing boats out across a wild sea. We have this new life to live. And yeah, the world isn't going to like it because if we do live out this life the way God calls us to, some are going to love it and be drawn to the kingdom. But many will be hostile. The world doesn't give up power and territory and hearts easily. We can expect jealousy and misunderstanding and fear and anger at times from family and friends and the world itself. But if you know that God's the blessed redeemer, he's the blessed controller, he's sovereign and he's working out his plan for us and in us and through us, we can be faithful to obey him. And when we do suffer, we can rejoice that we had the opportunity to walk in Jesus' steps, to suffer in his name. Let's pray. Lord, what a powerful passage. May we be people who are willing to live out the life you've given us to the full and be willing to follow you in obedience no matter what the world throws at us, knowing that you are the blessed controller. Deepen our faith. Help us trust you like the apostles did so that you might be glorified in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.